The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video. As seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd. And a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to another uh, super exciting episode. In fact, uh, Dror, this is like a special edition. That's right, a very special edition. And uh, we're very excited today to host... Uh, uh, not one video insider, but three. So we're going to have a very uh, interesting dialogue, I'm sure, about what are the tools, what are the techniques, what are the methods available to get as close as possible to some of the benefits of moving to advanced codecs, but with a codec that is baked into, you know, I think it's safe to say almost 100% of devices connected to the network today um, support support AVC. So. Uh, I'm super excited. And, you know, I guess I would like to start, uh, Avasar, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll, uh, we'll have Josh uh, introduce himself and Pankaj. Tell us where, where you guys are from and why you're excited to be here. My name is Avisar Tanami um, and I'm a VP of Engineering at, uh, at Discovery. My team is responsible for all the services from the uh, ingestion of the content into our platform up until it's getting delivered to our clients and everything that uh, goes in between. As, as you probably know, Discovery has been working uh, in the last uh, year, year and a half on building our own platform for delivering our D2C uh, content. And this is a major part of that platform. I'm very excited about the, the, this topic because it is critical in my mind to be able to deliver the best experience to our customers. Um, and not only that, it's it's also critical for enabling our customers to reduce the cost of their streaming uh, services. Awesome. Well, welcome to the conversation. Josh? Yeah, it's great to be here, guys. My name is Josh Barnard. I'm a technical director at iStream Planet. We're a subsidiary of Warner Media that provides live video transcoding, packaging, and other kind of video-related services to a number of big brands and kind of best known for running um, live sporting events. So we run the video backend for things like NBA, League Pass, and March Madness in particular. This is a really exciting topic to me because I think in the live streaming space, things are still very heavily H.264. We have, uh, sort of, I've seen very much lower adoption of HEVC and also much lower adoption so far of some of the technologies that make, that a lot of people are employing to make H.264 more efficient. So things like content adaptive encoding are really in, in the early phases if they're even being adopted in the live space. Some of that is due to the fact that everything has to happen in real time. But uh, so I think there's a lot of room for growth left, or maybe a lot of room for shrinking left is a better way to say it in the live H.264 space. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome. Pankaj. I'm Pankaj Topiwala, uh, CEO of Fast Video uh, LLC. We're um, a research company rather than a user of this technology. In other words, we're more inventors of technology than uh, a user uh, like the other two panelists that you have. Um, and so I'll have a different perspective on these technologies that we're going to talk about uh, than your other panelists, which will round out um, uh, this uh, space a little bit. But to tell you about us, uh, we've been in business for 20 years. Uh, we've been involved in the development of video codecs for the entire 20 years, uh, starting with uh, prior to H.264. Uh, and in fact, we were critically involved in the development of H.264, I would say more 
than even an HEBC and currently VBC. We've been involved in it, but uh, 264, we really took a special interest in, um, and uh, we had a lot of fun with that. So we made many proposals uh, during that time. I estimate more than 50 proposals uh, in our in our, um, our work in the standards committees, and uh, some of those, of course, have uh, made their way into the standards. Uh, so we're uh, pleased to be able to represent uh, sort of the standards uh, perspective, but as well as a, a different angle that we'll bring regarding, you know, content adaptive, um, you know, encoding. Uh, so I'll have more to say about that shortly. I think it'd be very interesting to hear from each of you and from where you sit in the ecosystem, um, what you're thinking about in terms of improving codec efficiency. So, you know, uh, is there like a magic bitrate efficiency number? As we've been out talking to the market for years as Beamer, um, you know, we've approached some uh, customers, some services, and, and, and they'll say, yes, you can bring us X, whatever that is. Sometimes it's 20%, 30%, 40% savings, and we're in. That's it. Just meet that bar and we're in. Others say, well, yes, that's interesting, but maybe we want to improve quality. And then there's even other things. So what do you all think about, and this is the question, um, when you're looking at your respective implementations and you're asking the question, how can I improve what we're doing? I I can uh, take a first step at this. So to me, it's a question of ROI. And and I think you look at it differently, whether you're looking on maybe uh, bringing someone to solve the problem for you versus looking, you know, uh, to build or invest uh, in order to solve the problem yourself. It's, you know, at any given point of time, I think it's a question of ROI. Uh, What am I going to be able to get compared to the investment that I'm going to, I need, I need to make. Um, And it's like peeling the onion. Every layer is uh, going to, get harder to get uh, or to squeeze out more efficiency and probably it's going to cost more. So when you start raw, you know, without any um, optimizations, you have a lot to squeeze out and the investment might not be as high. Um, and therefore, you know, uh, I think it needs to be evaluated in that, in that, in those lenses. The more, you know, you are able to squeeze out, the harder it will get to uh, get additional benefits. Um, you asked about, you know, whether you look at the improving the quality versus uh, the uh, improving the efficiency. These are, you know, uh, two sides of the same coin. I think the improvements that we get gives us the lever to say, I want to take these improvements and apply them to improving the quality that I deliver to my customers without changing the file sizes, or I want to take them, keep the same quality, but reduce the file sizes that I'm able to deliver to my customers. And I think the decision between one or the other really depends on, you know, what are the KPIs that you're tracking? What do you think improves the overall customer experience? Is it to be able to, to deliver a higher resolution at a lower bit rate, or is it to be able to deliver a much better quality picture at the same bit rate at the same resolution? Um, so those are the kind of you know I think uh, trade-offs that uh, you know uh, 
me and my team have been looking at uh, to make some of the, uh, these uh, these decisions. You know, are you being tasked in some cases with uh, maybe there's something that's going to AVOD or you're operating in AVOD and you know, let's face it, it really is about just cost, controlling cost. Obviously, quality has to be at some level, but it's about cost. And then maybe you have something that's more ultra premium where it's really about quality. Um, do, do you have any of those challenges even where it depends based on the, you know, the the, the, the content even? At Discovery, we've got a large uh, live platform with, uh, you know, Eurosport and some of the other properties versus uh, VOD content, we are not going to um, separate our quality requirements based on uh, the uh, type of uh, um, um, transactional uh, uh, by which you're going to get the content, whether it's you know, VOD, SVOD, or AVOD. Um, there will be differences. If you, know, you get premium, you might be getting a higher resolution but we will still try to achieve the best quality for any resolution that we deliver. However, Discovery does have a lot of properties that do get delivered across the globe. And there are, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are different challenges when you go and try to deliver a piece of content in the US versus in uh, Europe versus uh, in uh, places like uh, India. Uh, where we need to be more conscious about the size of the files uh, that we deliver and therefore put much more effort in trying to optimize uh, the efficiency of the encodes and the decisions of where we make the transition between one, res one resolution to the other. Uh, yeah, that, I think there's a couple of things that uh, Avisar mentioned that I think uh, I have some perspective on. One is sort of as we talk about, especially international markets, there may be constraints there that you know drive a lot of this. Uh, for example, we delivered the Rugby World Cup last year in New Zealand, and the viewership uh, there on a product called Spark Sport, the viewership down there was enormous. I mean, if you look at it as a percentage of the population who streamed some of those matches online, it would be the equivalent of getting like 30 million concurrents here in the US. Um, though the network there had never been tested like this before. And so there were really concerns of like, you know, we can't have an average bit rate of delivery above something like six megabit, or we're going to just tip over the network either inside the country or into the country. And so you start to set constraints there of what's the best experience I can deliver at that bit rate and not go above it. And then you start looking at, there's some simple decisions there, obviously, like what frame rate and resolution are we going to kind of cap out at? But then you do also kind of get into the, what can I do, if anything, to drive higher quality at that given bit rate? Um, the other thing I would say is price is definitely a big driver for us, um, especially in the live streaming world and less with events, but especially with live linear TV channels that are 24 seven. There are times a day where viewership might be lower or higher, depending on the content, depending on just what's happening in that market. And so being able to tune in quality in a particular, it's not just about the content adaptive encoding, but also maybe you could talk about like the audience adaptive, like the, at a particularly popular time of day, we'd like to be able to encode with more CPU used to get to higher quality, whereas it may not be worth that money at two in the morning on a, when there's an infomercial on. 
So I think that's another angle for us that's interesting to think about as we move forward is how can we allow adaption over time of what we're doing, maybe even removing resolutions or bit rates at certain time periods and then bringing them back in at other times. That's very interesting, adapting the encoding to the audience and not just to the content. And you're not talking here about um, adapting uh, the bitrate or the quality, but actually adapting the encoding resources that you use because that is part of your um, of your costs. Um, but luckily, those encoding resources uh, for the live sports events are not uh, multiplied by the number of uh, of users, right? Because you only need to encode once or maybe a hundred times because you have many resolutions and bit rates and, and AVR letters and you need to support a lot of devices. Um, but still, it's not multiplied by like millions of users like your CDN cost. Exactly right. But unfortunately, the opposite is also true. So when we deliver a program that's only being watched by 10 people, we have to encode it just as much as we have to encode the Super Bowl. And so well, we want to make it so that we're encoding it less. And how can we save money, but still deliver a reasonable experience? And then ideally, one of the things we want to look at and we're looking at in the future is how do we then scale that up if suddenly there's breaking news or there's an event that comes on? How do we adapt that encoding profile or encoding ladder to offer a really good experience now that there's lots of lots of viewers? And our customers kind of demand that, right? They their revenue is low when there's not a lot of viewers and their revenue, their ad revenue can go up a lot when there's a lot of people and their opportunity to kind of retain and, and delight those customers can go up a lot. So, you know, it's interesting. One of the features uh, in our SDK that we built in from almost the very beginning, I believe, is the ability to make um, some pretty uh, major changes to the encoder on the fly. Right now, this is planned in advance. Uh, I think it's definitely an aspiration for us to to get to, and, and I believe it's reasonable to get to in the next sort of 12 months that we could have, you know, sort of an API where you call and say, hey, increase the quality on this channel. There's obviously some handshake stuff that has to happen if we're adding or removing bit rates, but historically this has been more of a manual thing, right? Oh, we know the, the playoffs are on tonight. Let's um, have a sep- second version of this channel at higher quality and the client will cut users over to that or something of that nature. Especially in the live space, uh, one thing that is a feature I've seen in some places, but we haven't had a chance to really leverage yet, is sort of the ability to do a hardware maximization mode, right? And basically say to the codec, you've got, you know, keep this thing running hot. Use 95% of the CPU. If you get to an easy part, uh, you know, ramp up the quality. And a part of that could be if I can if I can allocate more CPUs to you, can you then suddenly dial up your quality automatically? Uh, I think is a really compelling technology for the live space where you don't really know ahead of time what you're getting in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. Uh, Pankaj, what is your view on this? So every encoder um, uh, does something called rate distortion optimization. Effectively, a video codec has predictors, transforms, um, and um, uh, filters, quantizers, and so on. Uh, many of these things can be uh, come with parameters. Uh, and I'll give you a simple, uh, simple, uh, example, uh, in encoding 70 to 80% of the computation is done in just motion estimation, but you could do searching for motion vectors in a small range, or you could search in a larger range, or in an ideal world, you could search every point in your image for a motion vector. Uh, that's called full search. 
Now, no encoder in the world can do full search because nobody can do it fast enough. Um, uh, but when uh, when people are talking about you know upping the computational uh, load in order to improve the performance, that's what they're talking about is giving the rate distortion optimizer a little bit more legroom, a little bit more freedom uh, to search a little bit more in all the spaces of predictors, transforms, whatnot, filters, in order to get um, a better performance in the codec. And that, of course, is the main way you can improve the quality. And this is not the rate distortion, um, you know, um, uh, leg that uh, we were talking about earlier and Avisar was talking about there's a trade-off that uh, either you get good quality or you get this but here I can improve the quality at the same rate by just putting more resources so that's an interesting thing and we're very interested in that technology in fact uh, I'm very very interested for example in how now to improve the quality from a visual point of view we worked with PSNR for 30-35 years Uh, we know it's imperfect now we know it's really imperfect and we need to do much better than we can just a quick comment I think what uh, Pankaj said is it's one of the differences between you know the constraints that you have for live encoding versus VOD encoding, where in VOD, in many cases, sometimes latency is important for VOD as well, but in many cases, you can spend more time to uh, let all the compute happen, and therefore you need less compute resources to achieve the same goal that you want to do for live, where latency is critical. And that's exactly right. Uh, There's no question about it. I would say, though, that um, even in live, um, the broadcasts that uh, I'm aware of are typically several seconds on the order of 10 seconds behind the actual event. Uh, eight to 10 seconds. And so there is a lag. Now, much of it is just communication, but some of it is actually in the encoding. Um, uh, So depending on how much hardware power you have, that should be enough time for you to do, you know, uh, powerful encoding. So it's just a question of, you know, resources again. So I I want to ask you, um, and this is going a bit uh, beyond the encoding. I mean, obviously one way, to uh, improve uh, the the bandwidth or um, to reduce the bitrate in order to uh, meet this uh, bandwidth crunch that we are all facing is is to change uh, bitrate or to change the codec or uh, employ uh, more tools uh, in the codec. Um, But uh, there's another way to do it. You can tackle it at uh, the delivery level. Uh, You can uh, optimize uh, the CDN. Uh, You can cache some of the content, and then um, at least uh, on the backbone, you need to uh, deliver uh, less because the, the content is already there. Uh, so um, have you uh, tried these kind of uh, approaches, which are uh, not at the encoder level, um, to, uh, to, reduce, um, um, to reduce the bitrate and to, uh, uh, to get uh, to a better working point with your H.264 encodes? Well, to me, I, I feel like they're, they're kind of solving maybe two different problems. The first one, which we've been talking about uh, so far, is in a perfect world, if I can deliver, you know, the exact bits that uh, we encoded at, a, you know, the highest bit rate, how do I make that the best quality for my customer? Or if my customer is limited to a lower bit rate, at that bit rate, how do I deliver to him the best uh, experience uh, possible. And, and 
to do that, we need to make sure that when we encode the content, we you know uh, reduce the loss uh, of quality as much as possible for the you know and and produce the smallest file size. The second part is how do I optimize the delivery so I can um, reduce the cost for my service. So you know I won't wouldn't need to. Uh, go through too many hops and I can deliver it as fast as possible to the uh, uh, to the customer, which means I need to bring those files as close to the customer as possible. So when the customer requests, the request get, can be answered as uh, fast as possible. So one, the latency or the, the video startup time can be fast. Two, uh, that the um, download speeds can be as fast as possible. So the client can download the highest uh, bit rates that the network uh, enables them. And the combination of the two results in delivering the best quality to the uh, client. The, the, the other part of it, you know, which you know, is the situation that we live now with uh, the, you know, COVID-19 or the example that uh, Josh gave before in uh, uh, the challenge they had in New Zealand in terms of the overall bandwidth of the network, is also being dealt on the delivery side. So we first made sure that we produce the you know, most efficient encodes, and now on the delivery side, we can make sure that we have the mechanism to control the actual you know, uh, traffic that goes through the network to make sure that we meet the constraints that are either coming from the requests from governments or constraints because of you know, the uh, overall bandwidth of, uh, of the network. And, and Josh, what are you doing to optimize uh, uh, the delivery part? Uh, delivery is a tricky part. And uh, I would say that sort of the bit rate you're delivering the video at almost is, is one input to this equation of how much someone can download to their machine. But, you know, it doesn't matter. The, the number that matters is the throughput to that last to the client, not really how big the video is. So if you have a tiny video, but you're delivering it to the client super slowly, it's still going to seem large from a network perspective. I think we've we've definitely worked with all the major CDNs on live delivery, which has its own sort of special needs, right? We have, on the one hand, you'd think live delivery should be easy since everybody's watching the same segment or the same set of small, small set of segments that's at the live edge of your video. On the other hand, you have this need to distribute that segment really quickly out to the edge. So if you take something like the Super Bowl, I mean, you want when that new segment comes out of the transcoder, you want that on every edge server in the country as soon as possible. Um, we've definitely worked, uh, and this is something that I know uh, companies like Fastly and Akamai and, and Level Three have worked really hard on. Um, technologies like prefetching, so they'll you can enable modes where they'll sort of say, "All right, I know this is a live event. As soon as the manifest advertises a new segment at the origin, I'm going to pull it out to the edge, even though a user hasn't requested it yet." The idea being that you're ready for them when they come. Um, I think also leveraging technologies like multi-CDN delivery is becoming, you know, which I think is already very standard in the in the VOD space. You have almost, I would say there's probably no serious VOD service that's not leveraging multiple CDNs. In the live space, that's still, in my experience, becoming normal, but it's not necessarily the case for all events. I think that that will also deliver much better experiences and much you're more likely to get the higher quality video to the client once you're able to leverage two, three, four CDNs and be able to make intelligent decisions about 
which one is going to deliver the best experience for a given customer in a given location. What's the issue with multi-CDN for live? Why is that as not being as widely adopted? You know, I've I've actually been grappling. I've, I've been wondering about that myself since I got into the live space a few years ago. It seemed kind of strange to me. I think some of it is that um, you had one or two players who kind of had a reputation as being the only ones who could do it. Um, I think some of that was probably true that the technology, not all the CDNs had invested in live delivery because it is a little more niche. Um, and some of it, I think, was just. Uh, some of it is probably investment also in infrastructure on the part of the CDNs. So to deliver, let's if we talk about large scale live events, you have very high sort of surge throughput requirements. So that implies for the CDN a very large capital expenditure to get to the kind of scale that you need to deliver a big event like a Super Bowl or, or playoffs or things like that. Um, so I think that that was a challenge for some of those smaller CDNs. Now, arguably that's in part solved by multi-CDN delivery, where you could spread your load out across more providers. But I think as more as the CDN space has grown and there are more large, capable players, it becomes more realistic to, to be able to do that. I think the other part of that is uh, the switching logic between the multi-CDNs. While in VOD, you know, maybe the reaction time of uh, I have an issue and I need to you know, switch traffic from one CDN to another, um, you know, if you if it takes you longer, it might impact customer, but the, the impact is is smaller than if I have now a live event and there's an issue in one CDN and I need to switch to another. Um, and I think we're still uh, at a place where the uh, services or the the, the uh, ability to do those smart switching uh, fast is still in uh, in in its evolution. There are some nuances in the live space around delivery to the CDN, or what we, we call publishing, uh, where there's error cases for live that really just don't exist for VOD. I mean, for VOD, you can you can upload your video and then you say it's ready when all of the video is up there. In live, if one segment doesn't make it, you may be out of time to try that segment again. And so you could end up with, there's error cases you can end up with where Akamai has a segment that Limelight didn't get, or Origin, your Origin in the West Coast got a segment that the East Coast didn't get. And so that does add complexity and it gets adds more complexity once you have multiple CDNs, you might have different failure behaviors or different caching behaviors. You need a lot of smarts to just manage um, that redundancy and be able to recover the missing segments um, as, as they appear. Somebody somewhere is making a smart decision when that happens, right? Somebody has to switch origins. It could be the CDN, it could be the right. client, it could be a mix, but right. yeah, somebody has to do something smart. Yeah, I was going to uh, chime in uh, from a technical point of view, what can be done. Uh, so I think uh, Josh mentioned, um, you know, if you're, so most of these streams, by the way, are happening using, you know, uh, uh, streams over HTTP, right? Uh, most of the streaming is HTTP now. It's not, uh, almost nobody's using, you know, RTP over UDP uh, anymore. Uh, so that's uh, history. Uh, but uh, with CCP, uh, you have this automatic repeat request when a, a packet's dropped. And that could, uh, you know, throw monkey wrenches, especially into live streaming. Um, and so besides the prefetching, you know, one thing, one technology, which is not yet used, but if ever uh, is actually becomes practical, 
would make a big difference is called scalable video coding. Um, uh, it has uh, been attempted. Uh, standards have existed for last 15 years, but it has never been used. Uh, although the application case is clear, you know, bandwidths get constrained. Um, uh, if uh, the CDN or somewhere along the way, um, uh, some router could just downscale your video 5% so it makes it through the bandwidth that's available as opposed to being rejected and broken. Uh, that would make all the difference in, in that stream uh, for a significant portion of that uh, period right there. That technology has been a promise for some time uh, and has not yet become uh, caught on because it has other complications. Uh, but uh, there is a solution possible. And I just want to alert uh, your readers uh, and listeners to that. Um, uh, the other thing, of course, that's being widely used is multicasting. When you have a live stream, that same packets are going everywhere now, but not all receivers are uh, able to receive at the same quality, at the same resolution, and the same bit rate. So somewhere along the line, again, it has to be scaled. Now, um, the, the the streaming company uh, can send you know multiple streams and can manage maybe four different streams uh, of the same content. Uh, I don't know what you do, um, uh, Josh. Uh, I don't know how many streams you actually put out, uh, but you obviously can't do hundreds and you can't do adaptive bit rate uh, for every user, that's just not possible. Uh, so uh, in, in live streaming, uh, if, uh, again, if you had uh, scalability, the router along the way could adjust uh, for you. That would be um, a big, big bonus for you. My understanding is that multicast uh, is available if you have support for that in your infrastructure. So let's say if, if you're uh, Comcast, then obviously, um, even if you're streaming over IP, uh, but you are the IP, uh, the ISP, and you are the infrastructure provider for the user. Yeah, it turns out that uh, here in Israel, they're actually one of the providers, at least, of the OTT providers uh, who is giving uh, TV services over the open internet, is able to use multicast because uh, the infrastructure provider, we only have two here. We have a phone company and we have a cable company, one of each. And uh, one of those infrastructure providers is able to provide uh, a multicast link for that um, for that OTT provider. Uh, of course, it is much more expensive than uh, than a regular uh, HTTP or unicast link, um, but it is a single link uh, that uh, that will then go to all of the users um, at the same time. So they are using that uh, for live events, um, and and still it is very cost effective for them uh, uh, to use it, and they're using it for. Um, uh, for AVC uh, uh, delivery. Um, and I don't know how common that is in other parts of the world. And if any of you have heard about uh, actually uh, using uh, multicast um, for uh, live OTT delivery uh, by like uh, over the top, uh, you know, pure OTT providers. We use a lot of multicasts on the ingest side inside the data center, but in terms of delivery, not that I'm aware of. Peer-to-peer -peer CDN is sort of the, the closest technology that I you know, I'm aware of actually getting some use, although I've seen that to date, most of the use there is an experimental. I haven't, I'm not aware of any major player delivering major content that's critical to their business over P2P. Yeah, but you think that uh, if you've got 30 million to 50 million people watching and you're all watching uh, the same content, Although, albeit at different, um, you know, different bandwidths and resolutions, but 
you could stream uh, at least something uh, uh, can't comment all. Now, this is again where scalable coding would help because you can send the base layer identically to everybody and then build upon that with enhancement layers. Uh, so that's been the dream of scalable coding for uh, more than two decades now, since MPEG-2. Uh, and uh, we we have hints of um, you know how powerful it could be, uh, but uh, it has not been deployed, and that's uh, it's been a, a setback from the point of view of use. Uh, but maybe you know if you were um, you know ESPN say, and you're streaming live co live content uh, much of the time, uh, you want to be able to use um, uh, a scalable codec because you need to deliver uh, live content to millions of users. Uh, that uh, would be would be a powerful thing to do. Let's go back to content adaptive encoding, and um, you know it's it's interesting. Uh, it, it, NAB, if the show had gone on, uh, you walk the floor, and you know I think uh, almost every booth would have some mention to. Uh, CAE, uh, you know, people call it different things, right? When you stop to uh, talk to the various companies who are representing these technologies or developing them, you quickly realize that, you know, even in the cases where they're using the exact same uh, name or description, um, the, the methods that they're using to achieve uh, these bit rate reductions are so wildly varying. And in some cases, uh, you know, it's not even apples and oranges, you know, it's like fruits and vegetables or something. Uh, you just can't, you know, there's just, it's very difficult to compare. So what experiences, uh, you know, can you share about uh, CAE? I think to me, you know, CAE starts with the move from uh, tuning the encoder settings or, or, or defining the bitrate letter through the use of uh, what we call, you know, people with the golden eyes or, or you know, recommendations that are coming from Apple and other big streaming companies to utilizing, you know, video quality metrics. You know, Pankaj mentioned, you know, they've been uh, using in the past uh, PSNR and, and in, you know, recent years, uh, the development of other quality metrics with the push that came from Netflix, other quality metrics that are much, much more accurate have risen and have gotten to a point that you can leverage them uh, in order to do much better assessment of uh, the quality that we deliver through our encodes at scale. Um, so if before, you know, I had my, uh, uh, we had our, our golden eyes look at uh, uh, different titles to tune the encoder, they could have scaled to maybe watching 10, 12 videos to, you know, and, and even that was a stretch to try and find the right points where, you know, we should uh, set the settings of the encoder or where the right points where the bitrate letter uh, uh, steps should be. Now, when you can take a video quality, you know, uh, one of the, yeah, I think, most common examples today is VMF, and you can run through it uh, hundreds, if not thousands of uh, clips and use that to make decisions on how to tune your encoders, or how to tune your bitrate letter, you can come up with something that's uh, much more accurate. You add on top of that the layer that now for this tuning, you're using your own content um, and that, you know, starts to make it, you know, 
uh, take it toward the content aware or content adaptive encoding. And the more layer you add on top of that, you know, the more you get there. So, you know, it can be initially just I'm tuning my encoder settings and my bitrate based on my own content. And then maybe I'm creating buckets of content and for each one I'm adapting uh, you know, it to its own settings. Maybe for big uh, live events, I'm using, let's say I've got a soccer match coming up that's very important, and I can tune the encoder settings uh, or the uh, bitrate ladder steps for a soccer match by using, you know, clips from soccer, uh, previous soccer matches in order to find those right, you know, the more accurate uh, positions uh, to put the steps of the ladder. Um, and then, you know, the, this can go down to happen uh, per title, per segment of a, a, a title, and so on. This is a really interesting insight uh, that you said uh, that the key to the content adaptive encoding is having a good quality measure. Uh, and this enables you to automate the process of quality evaluation. And by this, uh, you can optimize uh, the parameters of your video titles at scale. Uh, when we started Beamer in 2009, uh, we did actually start content adaptive encoding with images, with JPEG images, trying to find uh, the right encoding parameters for each JPEG image so as to minimize the file size uh, and still keep the quality of the original image. And we immediately discovered that what was missing in the industry was a good quality measure uh, with uh, high correlation with uh, human perception that will enable you to find the, that tuning point of uh, for each and, and every uh, uh, image, um, in order to uh, to keep the perceptual quality. If you want to keep that quality, you really need uh, a good way to to measure that quality. So uh, it's a really interesting insight that you've uh, uh, that you've brought, and uh, and I definitely uh, I definitely support that. I think that there's sort of two parts to well, at least two parts to content adaptive encoding. We know that some companies at scale like Amazon and Netflix are doing machine learning analysis on the videos coming in to sort of categorize them or determine what parameter stick it's used. And then there's the second thing is sort of like this stuff like um, Beamer codecs obviously have and the, the X264 and X265 codecs have in their CRF modes where there is some sort of inside of the codec adaptation process that can make decisions based on some measure inside of the encoding process. Uh, I do think both of those are very interesting, although although the, the pre-processing or the, the pre-analysis of content is, I believe, at a stage right now where it's still kind of prohibitively expensive for any but the largest players to, to take part in. The the sort of I don't know if it's not exactly content adaptive encoding, but I think content adaptive pre-processing is, is maybe a better term. Is the place where I've seen there's just a ton of potential as well. Um, when I was at Amazon Video, we definitely saw the potential there, and and now at iStream, I think also uh, your ability to take the content coming in and do the right pre-processing on it can make a huge quality difference and actually drive down um, bit rates as well. So that means if you can figure out whether content is telecined or interlaced and make the right sort of pre-processing decision to clean up that content. Even something as simple as, you know, detecting and removing letter boxing or pillar boxing in an incoming feed, those things can make a huge quality difference, reduce the bit rate required for delivery and they're codec agnostic as well. 
So I think that's another area for sort of content adaptation. It's not exactly part of the encoding process, but where there's a ton of potential and there's a ton of um, gain to be to be had if you can if you can do it right. Yeah, and you mentioned um, you know C- CRF, and uh, we have uh, our version is called CSQ, constant subjective quality. Um, but there's, you know, there's certainly some mechanisms that are available um, just in, in, in the open source codec as well as in ours and presumably, you know, others that are out there that if someone understands how they operate um, can, are, can be quite effective. Um, you know, they each have their own respective limitations uh, depending on the content type, et cetera. But, um, you know, there are some very valuable tools. You would be horrified to know how much of the live streaming today is done in constant bitrate. <laughs> and so I think there's a ton of space left to improve I, I, the I live think, streaming world. I think it's probably because there are still bigger problems to solve before people get to the granularity of optimizing the bit rates, you know, for the live uh, for, for, for the live production. You know, it's, it's getting the feeds, you know, you know, the right place is making sure the failovers work, you know, appropriately, the, the CDN integ- integration, you know, the challenges that uh, Josh mentioned before uh, uh, around CDN that are specific to live. Um, so I think that setting up that big operation has so many other areas that requires focus that that's kind of left maybe, you know, uh, more, you know, to, uh, to a later phase uh, which I think we're getting to. I think, as much as just mentioned, most a lot of the services are still using CBR. There are ones that are moving away uh, uh, from CBR to you know more of a VBR, and 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 even there, there are different ways that it's being implemented. I think some of it is also driven by sort of a lot of live encoding. This is decreasingly true, but for a long time, live encoding was generally done in hardware that didn't have some of the features that software codecs have been you know, iterating on for years now, I think that trend is finally fading. But so I think we'll see a huge leap in, in live video quality in the next few years as sort of people move to technologies that have now been sort of tested and proven out in the VOD space, we'll probably leapfrog over a couple of, of iterations and then jump right to things like content adaptive encoding. Right. And as, as more and more CPU compute is available, uh, you can do better, higher resolution, higher quality encoding in software. Um, and, you know, last year when the uh, AMD Epic Rome came out with its uh, 64 cores on each chip and you have, uh, you know, um, dual CPU systems, uh, uh, you know, we, we were able to leverage that and do 8K um, um, P60 encoding uh, in, in, uh, in software that was with, uh, with HEVC. And, and uh, you know, without this compute power, it was just impossible. And uh, 4K, you know, for a couple of years has already been possible in software. Of course, before that, it was only, um, you know, hardware platforms that were able uh, to encode it. So I, I agree, the more software, uh, you know, eats up this space of uh, video encoding, uh, you'll get more flexibility, uh, better quality through better uh, tools. Uh, variability, content adaptive, everything we've uh, discussed so far. And I think also live is, you know, pushing really hard and fast, you know, to provide, you know, more features, you know, as the competition increases, like, you know, uh, 
you already see live events that are you know not only 4k but hdr with uh, um, dolby uh, atmos uh, uh, sound uh, and there are you know events that are trying to push the envelope to you know to do 8k um, so all those advancements require better stronger optimizations on all the components that enables the delivery including you know the encoding right and and i think this is a, a great lead-in to talk about uh, the next generation of of encoding because obviously if you're doing 8k with avc uh you'll get a huge um uh, level of of bitrate that that cannot go over the network uh and uh um, and mostly for uh, 4K streaming uh, today, the next generation codec is used, HEVC. Uh, so we talked a lot about H.264, and I think uh, uh, we can all agree that this is uh, uh, the most popular codec today on the internet, and most content is still delivered in H.264, and we keep uh, you know, improving this um, delivery through various uh, techniques. But at some point, uh, there will probably be a transition because the newer and more efficient codecs are available. Um, however, they had uh, their issues. For example, HEVC is supported on billions of devices on the playback side, but still hasn't taken off, hasn't taken off because of uh, legal issues and, and perhaps other issues. So I wanted to uh, uh, hear your perspective on uh, the adoption of next generation codecs, starting from HEVC, uh, which is already uh, deployed on the player side, and continuing with even more efficient uh, codecs that are being developed now uh, by the EMPA committee, such as EVC and uh, VVC, and also the open source uh, AV1, which has a very strong uh, backing, um, but still uh, support on, on devices, especially in hardware, is still uh, limited. So it would be very interesting uh, for me to hear uh, your thoughts on uh, what will be uh, the codec that will um, uh, that will um, uh, eventually knock H.264 um, off the lead, and when do you think that will happen? In my view, you know, 264 has been commonly adopted, so it's an almost uh, a, a, a must. In, it's universal, but it, it's a must for a new service that launches. If you want to, you know, come into the market, you have to support 264 because that's what you know would reach every, you know, platform, every player. Um, and I think for existing services, and I look on, you know, the discovery for, for, for example, but if we want to, you know, uh, when we want to support additional products, it's an investment, not only on the, client side on the devices that we need to make sure that you know the hardware supports it and you know software supports it it's an investment on the uh, backend side it's an investment on you know taking the catalog that we have the existing catalog that we have and re-encoding it to you know support the new codec it's extra storage it's extra compute you know there's a lot of things that need to happen in order to support an additional codec before you can completely retire, you know, uh, 264. And I think um, the thing that would drive adoption of a, or a much stronger adoption, it's not that 265 is not adopted, right? It, it's still, um, I think there are places where you see, you know, almost uh, 50%, if not uh, more usage of 265. Uh, but I think 
the thing that will drive adoption for a new uh, codec are if that is going to be tied to a new feature, new capability that can be delivered only using that codec. And, and I think 4K is one of those things, but I don't think 4K has gone to the point where you have, I guess, uh, the critical mass of content and critical mass of maybe devices uh, out there that require 4K or that enable you to watch 4K to make that transition. So maybe 4K is not sufficient uh, to uh, drive the retirement of 264. Maybe there is something else out there that might be that feature that make it worthwhile for everyone to make the investment uh, that, um, the way uh, You know, it's, uh, it's not as if having a more efficient codec, and I work in the standards committees, uh, and I know the efficiency of these codecs uh, pretty well, uh, but even if you introduce a more efficient codec, as Officer was pointing out, in the meantime, you're going to go through a rough patch where things are actually harder and you're actually spending more of it because you have to spend, uh, you have to stream in both 264 and the next solution at the same time. And you, so you go through a period of inefficiency no matter what you do. And so if you want to go through that, you really have to be able to see that uh, it's worth your trouble. And uh, so, uh, again, what the, I was pointing out, 4K is certainly a motivator uh, to move up to a better codec, uh, but 4K HDR is a slightly better uh, motivator. So if HDR were to become, you know, not 5% of the streams out there, but 50% of the streams out there uh, or more, uh, then um, uh, HEVC, which better supports, um, you know, HDR, uh, would suddenly have a much greater appeal and uh, people would be demanding it. Uh, and similarly, with, uh, you know, augmented and virtual reality, where if you want to have an experience that really is realistic, you need to have 4K and 8K per, per eye. So you have to have stereo, ideally 8K, uh, and at uh, better than 60 frames per second, ideally 120 frames per second. Now you're talking about a massive amount of video and no legacy codec, including 264, can support that in anything kind of like the, the bit rates that we want. And so that's what's going to push this thing. But, you know, the AR VR dream has been on the shelf for a while and it's going to remain on the shelf, in my opinion, for at least a little while longer. I think it's going to come. I'm sure it's going to come, especially the augmented reality. But uh, is it next year? No, I don't see it next year. Is it the year after? I'm not so sure. Uh, uh, in 10 years? Yeah, I think in 10 years we'll have uh, much more uh, AR, VR content. And HDR uh, will become much more dominant uh, in that time period because we'll have the sufficient numbers of receivers that can watch HDR or be able to decode um, you know, 8K video and give you um, uh, uh, a quality of, um, of augmented or virtual reality that, uh, that you want. Uh, so it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing. Uh, I don't see 264 retiring anytime soon. Uh, numbers that I've seen uh, just in the last couple of years, 264 is actually increasing its market share, not decreasing, and it's at 80% or higher is the number I'm seeing. Uh, and HEBC is coming up down about 10, 12%. Uh, and then AV1 and uh, VP9 are below that uh, quite a bit. Uh, now, does AV1 have the ability to leapfrog all of these and jump ahead? 
It does because of who is supporting it. Uh, some of the biggest names in, in consumer electronics are supporting, you know, AB1. Uh, and if they actually use it, if Apple starts to use it, instead of just supporting it, uh, you know, by name, uh, that would make a big difference. Uh, and uh, so that remains to be seen. Uh, the 800-pound gorilla or the elephant in the room that we're not talking about, of course, is licensing. Uh, and that an could HDR, be the decider. Of course, but I actually think the main driver of 264's continued dominance is really about the decoder. It's not about licensing to me. It's about you know when you deliver an H.264 stream that there's going to be a hardware decoder on the device you're hitting. And I think media companies are, or, or companies that are delivering video are very, um, they don't want to have to encode things twice. There's, there's, sep- there's a, a tier of provider like Netflix, like Amazon Video, that I think are happy to do that, right? They'll, they're delivering at such a volume that it's actually more cost-effective to encode it twice and get more reliable delivery or, or cheaper delivery on the devices that can support it. But I think what's keeping a lot of companies from doing HEVC is that they won't be able to just switch to HEVC. They'll have to do HEVC and H.264. And they don't see enough value in in that, in doing it twice. Uh, I think we'll get there. And I actually think, I think HEVC is the candidate really because the hardware decode penetration there is getting high now. I just think it has it hasn't reached the point still, it's getting close, but it hasn't reached the point still where you could just say, you know what, I'm done with 264. I'm just going to stream HEVC. It is true that HEVC decode is in every SOC from, you know, I mean, look, the absolute, a $39 Roku box supports HEVC, you know, so it's in, it's in pretty much every SOC. It's on every smartphone. It's in every, you know, it's in every device, right? But what do you do with the browser? You know, and that's and and that's a problem. Um, so I wonder how that's going to get solved. Pankosh, any ideas? <laughs> that introducing a new codec, no matter how efficient it is, involves a lot of pain first, uh, because just as you said. Um, now you have to encode in two streams, not one. And who wants to do that? Uh, and so there's always, whenever you have an established technology, there's going to be resistance to changing it. Uh, but that's always true in every business model. And that was true when we had MPEG-2. And ABC had a fight to switch from MPEG-2 to, to uh, ABC. Uh, and uh, But eventually, customers were convinced and providers were convinced that there was enough value here that it was worth the switch. Well, I'm not sure I'm seeing that big of adoption to AV1 either, but it's still at the beginning and there's still not enough, I think, device and hardware out there that support AV1 and the uh, compute needed for AV1 is is uh, pretty intense compared to maybe the benefits yeah, I mean, I that think it the, can deliver. The question for AV1 is the same one I brought up for HEVC, right? I think, I think there's going to be adoption potentially by some of these big players, big backers of it who can see a big benefit, right? It might be worth it for Netflix to re-encode their whole catalog in EV1 and deliver it to any place that can play it back. But can it reach the point where it makes sense for, you know, everybody on the internet who's going to have video views of, you know, small video views for user-generated content or things like that? At what point does it reach the reach the model where that's cost-effective or that becomes the way you can do things? I, I, I don't see the path there, certainly not in the next couple of years. I absolutely agree with that. And that's why I think... HEVC has been adopted because it does give you some added value that, you know, even small services want to take advantage of, like 
4K, right? If you want to deliver 4K, you need to go to uh, HEVC. If you want to solve problem in low bandwidth areas, you might need to uh, go to HEVC, you know, to get above a certain quality uh, uh, threshold. Uh, but right now, I'm not sure I see, besides, again, the additional compression, I'm not sure I see the use case that can make it uh, uh, worthwhile for a small service to adopt uh, AV1, and which means it, it depends on how fast and what uh, benefits uh, will be delivered with uh, VVC to see if, uh, you know, uh, like Pankaj said, some uh, companies will leapfrog uh, AV1 go directly to VVC or, you know, something beyond that. H264 is here to stay. That's the conclusion of our panel uh, when discussing next generation uh, uh, codex. And that's uh, very interesting. I think this has really been a, a fascinating uh, conversation, uh, gentlemen. And I'd like to thank you very much uh, for coming here on the Video Insiders and sharing your views and insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. Thank you.